uh, we're in what you might call the third section of the book. The first part of the book talks about um, the background of Job. It gives us the insight as uh, to Satan coming to God and uh, the insight uh, and uh, his conversation with God that precipitated the suffering and events in his life. Uh, and then we've just recently finished the dialogue section, which is uh, many, many, many chapters of back and forth between Job and the friends as they seek to understand and help him with his suffering. Uh, it ends with everybody being at somewhat of an impasse with nothing more to say. Nobody is convinced. Uh, nobody knows. Uh, nobody is in agreement with one another. And then in chapter 32, which uh, we, we started last week, uh, a new guy shows up. Um, this is a younger man uh, who has not spoken thus far because uh, out of respect for his elders, uh, he was waiting for his turn and uh, waiting for those older than him to speak. Uh, his name is Elihu, and uh, we get introduced to him in chapter 32, verses 1 and following. Uh, he's very, very angry. I think the text says four times he's angry uh, at what's been going on. Um, he's been sitting there with the other friends and sitting with Job, wondering what's, uh, well, what's going on here and listening and listening to the dialogue and to the back and forth of the previous chapters. And finally, when everybody else is out of breath, he says, well, now it's my turn to talk. And, uh, and he, has, he has two issues with what has gone on that we read last time. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 32 says that uh, he is not real happy with, a lot, with uh, Job because Job is seeking, the end of verse 2 there, to justify himself before God. He's seeking, Job is seeking to say, I'm right and God is wrong. And uh, that is, that's one of the things that has him all wrapped around the axle there. The other thing that has him upset, verse 3, is that the friends have rebuked Job, they've condemned him, and yet they've been unable to give him a satisfactory answer. Uh, Job has refuted everything the friends have said, and um, so the friends were shown that their arguments were uh, in vain. Uh, they were not correct in what they had been saying. And then we saw last time in chapter 33, uh, Elihu beginning to address Job. Probably the best thing he says in his section of uh, four or five chapters here is in chapter 33, verse 12. And let's back up and, and uh, we'll just start it in verse 8 of chapter 33. Uh, Elihu says to Job, Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words. I am, and then this is, he's going to summarize what Job has been saying. Okay, So here's Elihu's take on what Job has been saying. I am pure. I am without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no guilt in me. Behold, he invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in stocks, and he watches all my paths. Now, that's Elihu's summary of what Job has been saying. He's accusing God of wrongdoing, and he is declaring himself innocent. Verse 12, Elihu's response, Behold, let me tell you, Job, you are not right in this, for God is greater than man. And I said to you last time, if he had stopped there, that would have been a sufficient answer. Elihu settles the issue of chapter after chapter after chapter of dialogue. He settles the issue for the characters at hand by saying, you know what? God's greater than you are. God's greater than we are as people. And uh, as, as Paul says in Romans, let God be found true and every man a liar if it need be. But God 
is right. God is righteous. He's just. And He's greater than man. Verse 13, he says, Why do you complain against Him that He does not give an account of all His doings? Um, what's the first thing that we typically ask when trial and suffering comes? What's the first thing we typically ask? Why? Don't you do that? I do that. Do you do that too? Why is this happening? Listen to Elihu's wisdom on this issue, okay? Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? What's he saying there? Who are you to question God? That's true, but he's even more specific than that. God is not accountable to us. Go one step further. Specifically, God doesn't... He doesn't owe us an explanation. Any guys have little kids or when you when your kids were little and, and you give them an instruction, right? And they always say, yes, sir, right? Is that what they always do? Not in my home. Um, and, and one of the things that, that kids do when you tell them to do something is they'll come back with something like this. Why? Why do I need to do that? Why should I tell Explain the logic, mom and dad. And... And one of the things that we're, we try to build into our kids is that though we might at times as parents give them insight and give them an explanation, we are not obligated to do so. And they should not automatically assume that they have a right to be a party in the discussion behind the instruction. And in a similar way, Elihu says to Job, you know what? God doesn't owe us an explanation. We read it last week. Our Lord is in the heavens. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And in the same way, I I would not even attempt, let alone expect, that my two-year-old would want to know every little reason about every decision I make. I mean, that's ludicrous because he can't stand, he can't understand 90% of it, can he? He can't understand the vast majority of why Lisa and I make decisions that we do because he's two, right? And in a similar way, Elihu is saying, you know what? Sometimes we're, we're, we're just like that two-year-old. God is not obligated to give us a reason. We should not expect that he does so. And frankly, if he did, a lot of times it'd go right over our heads. Why? Previous verse, because God is greater than man. Okay. So he jumps into this section here. Um, God knows what he's doing. God is, is greater than than man, and, and, and he does not owe us an account. By the way, by the way, if that's true, tell me, tell me what this book is then. If God doesn't owe us an explanation, what is this? Grace. This is grace. You got it. The fact that he does tell us something, the fact that he does tell us uh, sufficient information for what we need to know, it is... It is incredible that the God of the universe would say, um, I'm going to give you guys an all-sufficient instruction manual. I don't have to, but I'm going to. And, and we have it. We live in a time, a day and age, where we have 
a translation that we can understand. We have multiple copies. We have it very easily accessible. Half of you have it on your iPhones so that you can get it whenever you want to. You think about uh, David Gibson when he goes over to Papua New Guinea. They don't have that. They don't have that. They don't have translations that they can understand. That's why he's doing the, the translation work that he's doing. So, so let's keep in mind when the knee-jerk of our hearts in suffering is, why, God? Let, let's, let's time out for a second and let's say, wait a minute. Is my heart expecting that God owes me something here? Okay, And if, and if that's where I'm at, I, I need to make some changes in here, don't I? And then the second thing I need to do is reaffirm that God is greater than man, right? That he, he is infinitely greater than I am in this situation. And then the third thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go to his word and appreciate the grace of what he gives me in the instructions that I find there. Okay, does that make sense? Total reorientation here in thinking about our reaction and suffering. And then we saw last time... Um, you know, one of Job's complaints is that God isn't speaking. And, and, Job, and Elihu says, uh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. We see in verses 14 through 18, God speaks in dreams, which was one of the ways uh, in this day in time before they had um, uh, the Word of God in, in, in written down form, uh, God would often speak uh, in dreams and visions. But what, what was the other thing? That, that probably was... Uh, did I do that? I'm sorry. You guys are looking ahead there. Um, I guess that's my fault, isn't it? Uh, what was the other way that Elihu told Job that he speaks? Through suffering. Isn't that interesting? Look at verses 19 and following. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones. Why is that? Um, and his life from passing over into Sheol... I'm sorry, I looked up the wrong verse there. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his soul his favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones which were not seen stick out. Why? Then his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. Why would God bring suffering to take us, as it were, to the edge of life? Why would he do that? Okay, it is preventative. Okay, Brenda? Gives us an eternal perspective. Watch this. He interprets it in 29. Okay? Why would God bring us suffering to bring us to the edge even of death itself, right? Verse 29. Behold... God does all these oftentimes with men to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. What he's saying is God makes suffering a means of rescue. God will bring suffering to push you to the place where you do not want to go, to a place even of danger in order to save you from yourself. To save you from, um, as one of you said, as Kit said a minute ago, from, from things that I don't even know are in me yet, that God's working on. To save me from the sins in my own heart. 
Sometimes God has to take you to the edge of the pit to save you from it. Um, Sometimes God has to bring about a near-death experience to get you to pay attention to some things, to get you to be more careful, to get you to reorganize priorities. Has he done that in your life ever? And that's what he's saying here. God is going to use suffering to take you to the edge of life, to the edge of death, in order to rescue you from it. And we'll see more how that works today. Um, But that's really profound. I I told you, Carson, um, if I haven't advertised this book, let let me pause for a brief commercial announcement. Um, D.A. Carson, anything Carson writes is gold. So if you ever see D.A. Carson, buy the book, okay? There's not too many authors we can say that, right, Terry? But this this is one of the guys. He is, um, could we call him, Terry, the finest scholar in America today? I mean, he's Canadian, but he's... He's in. That's right. I know those Canadians. Um, he is probably the finest scholar uh, ministering in America today. He's up at uh, Trinity Seminary in Deerfield, uh, Illinois. Um, he wrote this book called "How Long, O Lord: Reflections on Suffering and Evil." It is very, very good, and uh, he has a whole chapter in here on um, uh, on Job. That's that's very helpful. Uh, I read you this. Uh, from Carson last time, about what God's doing in suffering. Listen to this. Uh, Here is chastening, a chastening use of suffering that may be independent of some particular sin. Its purpose may be preventative. It can stop a person from, from slithering down the slope to destruction. And that's kind of what he's saying here, is that God has brought this suffering to bring you to the edge of death in order to prevent something down the road or to save you from some issue in your own heart that you don't even see yet. Now, I told you I needed some time to to think about this next section here. And uh, let let me just say, um, I think I'm right, but I won't bang the pulpit too hard this morning. But I I think this is what's going on here, okay? Look at verse 23, okay? Okay. Uh, He says, God is greater than man. He doesn't owe you an account of what he does. Uh, He speaks sometimes in dreams and visions. He speaks through suffering and pain in order to save you and to bring you back from the pit. Verse 23, if there is an angel as mediator for him, one out of a thousand to remind a man of what is right for him, Then let him be gracious to him and say, Deliver him from going down to the pit, for I have found a ransom. Let's stop right there. Uh, This is a very interesting section. Because as Elihu unpacks for Job what he thinks is going on, he's going to connect what he says in verse 23 about a mediator to what he just previously said. God is bringing suffering. God is bringing trial for a reason. Here's another reason. What if, what if there was an angel, uh, Elihu says, for instance, one in a thousand. So he's saying this doesn't happen every day. This is very, very unlikely. But let's say, let's say that there was an angel, or maybe a better translation is a messenger, a spokesperson, that's what the word literally means, to act as a mediator. 
What would that spokesperson to do? Look at verse 23. To remind a man of what is right for him. A mediator, a spokesperson who comes to the person in suffering and reminds him what is right. And that mediator says, let him be gracious to him and say, deliver him from going down to the pit, for I have found a ransom. What is he, before I tell you what I think it means, tell me what you think that means. What is Elihu doing here? He's telling Job that the person in suffering just might see his need for a a mediator, a spokesperson, someone who would go, as it were, to God and say, deliver him from going down to the pit. And I take this as the mediator speaking. I have found a ransom. Part, here, here's what I think he's saying. Sometimes God will take you where you do not want to go. He will take you into suffering, even to the edge of life and death itself, to show you that you need a mediator. Do you see that? You buying into that? I think that's what he's saying. And that mediator will go to God and say, deliver him from going to the pit. Deliver him from dying. Deliver him from death. Why? Because a ransom has been discovered. Now, now, what's a ransom? Interesting word, isn't it? What's a ransom? Well, when I hear ransom, I think uh, some bad guys have taken some hostages and there's going to be an exchange of money for the hostages. Is that what you typically think of? That's what I think of. And um, that's not what the word means. David and maybe Terry will know this. It's kafar. Um, or let me spell it differently for you. Kapar. It's where we get Kippur as in Yom Kippur. What's Yom Kippur? The Day of Atonement. Kfar uh, let me give you a definition. The ransom literally means to atone by offering a substitute. So in the middle of this crazy poetic book of this back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, the writer pulls this word that belongs in Leviticus. It's a word 
that belongs in the priestly sections of the book. So put this together with me, okay? Elihu is saying, the man in suffering, God's going to bring him to a place where he sees that he needs a mediator. The mediator is going to go to God and say, spare him from going down to the pit because I found a sacrifice which atones by offering a substitute. Do you get what he's saying? It gets better. Look at this. Verse 25, let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Talking about the restoration of his health, the restoration of the calamity that he has been in. Verse 26, and again, um, I would take this verse as the person who's suffering, okay? He prays to God. The person in suffering prays to God, and he, God, will accept him. Why? Because atonement has been made. That he may see his face with joy. Now watch this. And he may restore his righteousness to man. He, God, may restore his, God's, righteousness to man. Listen, listen to Carson on this. This is... Um, now we'll come back to that. Come back to that. Let's, get, let's finish this paragraph here. Verse 27. When that happens, he will sing to men and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right, and it is not proper for me. The NIV says, and I did not get what I deserved. What's that? That's grace and mercy, isn't it? He says, this sufferer who is now accepted by God will sing to men. He will go around to all his friends and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right, but God did not give me what I deserve. He made atonement. He restored his righteousness to me. He accepted me. Verse 28, he has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit and my life shall see the light. Now, what do you think is going on in there? This is, I'm going to call this, and, and you, you guessed it, the gospel according to Elihu. Do you see that? I mean, let's just, here, let's, let's unpack the terms to make sure you get this, okay? And I, I goofed up my PowerPoint so you get all the answers all at once, but that's okay. Um, mediator means a spokesperson, okay? And, and, and again, what, what Elihu is saying is God is going to speak through suffering. How is he going to do that? He's going to bring a person to the end of himself so that he sees his need for a mediator Someone to deliver him from death, verses 24 and 28. Someone to provide a ransom, or better, uh, to make atonement. To atone by offering a substitute. To turn him back to the Lord, verse 26. To bring righteousness and joy, verse 26. To bring about repentance, that was verse 27. And to help him to see 
the light. Luther would have said, this is like the gospel in miniature, right? He said that about a different text, but that's what this is. This is the gospel according to the light. I mean, just let me give you a list of all the things we see in this section, okay? We see a mediator. We see grace and mercy. We see atonement. We see acceptance before God. We see the righteousness of God given to the sinner. We see the recognition of mercy, not getting what we truly deserve. We see redemption, and we see a coming to the light of truth. Is that not the gospel? Do you see that? Now, I don't... Let's uh, pull over for a second here. We read this with New Testament eyes, don't we? I mean, this sounds like Romans. I was reading this, I'm going, this is Romans 3, isn't it? This sounds just like Romans. And that's that's the danger and the joy of reading the Old Testament as New Testament believers. When a lie... See, this is... um, Let me show you what this is, okay? Hold your place there. Uh, turn to Colossians chapter 3 for a moment. Let me explain something to you that, that hopefully will help. here. I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 2. Um, let's talk about Christ in the Old Testament for a minute, okay? Sometimes, sometimes Christ is clearly mentioned in the Old Testament, okay? Like, like they're talking about the Messiah, by not not by calling him Jesus, but you know the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who is to come. What are some texts that that clearly talk about the Messiah? Okay, Isaiah fifty-three. What else? You didn't know there was going to be a quiz today, did you? What's that? Psalm twenty-two. Sure, the Lord said to my Lord. Okay. And I'm talking verses where we get clear glimpses of what's going on. There's clearly something going on here uh, with a direct reference to the Messiah. Okay, okay, all right. So Genesis 3, the... the, the uh, the seed of the woman crushed the head of Satan, that one? Okay. There are basically three categories of information that we get in the Old Testament that, that, that are about Jesus, okay? Some of them are when he is directly men- mentioned, like in Isaiah 53, like in Psalm 22. Others are what we call types. You guys okay with that? When the New Testament says this person was a type of Christ, he was a picture of Christ, uh, the one we think of is uh, the guy named Melchizedek. You remember him where Hebrews talks about Melchizedek was a type of Christ? And, and you know, some guys, 
Some guys take everything that smells like Jesus and make it into a type in the Old Testament. Um, I, I don't agree with that because I think the New Testament has to tell you when there is uh, someone who sort of represents Christ. The New Testament will tell you that. And like I said, Melchizedek in, in Hebrews is the, the one that I think we're all familiar with there. But you know what? The vast majority of information about Jesus that we get in the Old Testament is not a direct reference like number one, is not a formal type like normal two, but are what I like to think of as allusions. Um, and I'll show you what I mean. You in Colossians 2? L- l- listen to this. Um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul's talking about some of the Old Testament laws and Old Testament uh, rituals and uh, the stuff that we find in Levitical law there. He says, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Okay, so uh, the food and dietary laws of the Old Testament... Uh, the festivals, uh, the feasts of the, ta- of, of the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, um, Passover, the Feast of Booze, things like that. Or new moons, uh, again, their, their calendar revolved around the lunar calendar, so a lot of the festivals fell on new moons. And, of course, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day itself. Look at verse 17. Things which are a mere... What does it say? Most of what we get in the Old Testament about Jesus are shadows. Finish the verse. Things that are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay? What's a shadow? What's that? It's an impression or an outline, Jordan. Okay, it's a lack of light. Okay, what else? It tells you something's there. There's no details. So you guys are analyzing a shadow. Tell me what a shadow is. <laughs> That's good. It's all very good. But okay, look, look. Can you see that light? Keith, shadow. That's that's what it is. Okay. Okay. It does show you something's there. It doesn't fill in the details. But what is... <laughs> where do all shadows lead to? The source, right? If I go outside and, and, you know, the sun's close to the horizon and I look like I'm 63 feet tall standing in the parking lot, if someone's across the parking lot and sees the top of that shadow and they were to follow that shadow, they were to, to use it as a path, so to speak, who would they eventually find? Me. The treasure, yeah. 
Because shadows always point to the source. Do you see that? And most of what we get in the Old Testament is not a direct reference, is not even a type. They're shadows. They're pointers. They're they're things that make you go, what is this all about? So that you'll chase it. I mean, why, why on earth in... The Old Testament, when, when they're in the wilderness and God's giving them all these laws, he says, okay, I want you to just start slaughtering animals. What? You know, if, if, if you do this, then kill this bird. If you do this, kill this sheep. If you do this, kill this goat. And does God have something against animals? I mean, what's the deal here? Why is the Old Testament so bloody in terms of sacrifices? Why on that day of atonement did God say, gather the congregation of Israel, have the high priest come with the two goats, and he he was to take the one goat and grab the horns and put his head on the head of the goat itself and pray over the goat confessing all of the sins of all the people. You ready? For the whole year. And then they would slaughter that goat in the presence of the kids, in the presence of all the congregation of Israel. They would take the other goat. What would they do? They'd send it, they'd, they'd send it in the wilderness, wouldn't they? Okay, A picture of the sins being taken out of the camp. Why? Why the blood? Why every single thing you do wrong requires blood? Why are all of these innocent victims suffering instead of me? Why? It's a shadow. It's a pointer. It's a map. It's a compass to see that that points one day to the Savior coming. So that when Jesus showed up and said, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, everybody goes, I get it! Because there's all this stuff here. There's all these shadows. There's all these maps and pointers saying, we got to get the table set so that when the guest of honor comes in, we can understand what's going on. So I don't think, I don't think for a minute that Elihu had a clue what he was saying. I don't think he was thinking in Levitical terms. I don't think he was thinking about that. What he's saying is, Job, can't you see that you need someone to help you? And we read that and we go, I know who he's talking about. Because one day, one day, all of that would come together in the person and work of Christ. Um, We need a mediator, don't we? We need someone uh, to save us from ourselves to save us from His wrath. Someone who will mediate for us so that God will accept us, who will restore righteousness, who will redeem us from death. Someone who we can go around saying, God didn't give me what my sins deserve. He saved me. And He redeemed me and He showed me the light of His Word. It's the Gospel according to Elihu. It's exactly what it is. And, and, and what, what's left on the floor of that chapter are all of these theological nuggets. If, if you look on the floor now in the church, after unpacking this text, you will see theological nuggets all over the floor. And those nuggets all come together when we understand 
the full message of Christ's redemption in the gospel. Okay. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Do you, do you, can I just ask you, do you read the Old Testament looking for those things? Do you read that saying, this is teaching me about Christ. This is teaching me about His word. That's why in your Bible reading plan, you don't gloss over Leviticus. You know, okay, I get it. Uh, lots of animals die and that's it. Don't do that. That's designed to do something in your heart so that you see your need for a Savior. Okay, I'm done. There's a couple questions here. Yeah. Gary? Because it, it's all a shadow. Or it's, say, say it a different way, it's, it's a preparation for the cross. Yeah, in that, yeah, yeah, right. I know, I know what you meant. Right, right. Yep, yep, that's it. Yeah, Rich? Preach it. Preach it. Get up. When I first read that thing about the angels and everything, um, what first came to my mind was those instances that, that all of us can identify with where, you know, we're driving along and all of a sudden we're in a near-miss accident and you sometimes sit and go, oh, my goodness, um, was an angel looking out for me? Right. Uh, or like Brian right. Burkle we talked mm-hmm. about. That could be. That could be. And it's those instances, quite frankly, a lot of times make us pause and think. Right. It was grace that kept me from from dying. Right. That's right. That's very good. That's That's very true. Look at verse 29. Behold, God does all these. What's it say? (laughs) What's the next verse? Oftentimes. God brings suffering oftentimes. Literally, it says twice, even three times. It's a Hebrew way of saying a lot. Behold, God does all these things. He brings suffering oftentimes with men. Why? To bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of truth. Here's my summary of that verse, okay? God will often bring suffering into your life, into my life, to bring us to the place where we see that we need the gospel to save us from death. God uses, as it were, even the threat of death to save us from it. And he does it how many times? Yeah, what, what did what does Peter say? Do, you know, do not be surprised at the uh, fiery trial. You know, why are you surprised? Peter says, "Don't you know this is what you signed up for? 
as it were. Paul's told Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Um, and sometimes saying to God, I get it, just makes it go away. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm glad, I'm glad you said that because how often does God want us to embrace the gospel? Every day. He wants us to see that we need Him every day, doesn't He? And and suffering, He says there, God does oftentimes to keep us in that place where we depend on Him and trust Him and turn to Him. Uh, He mentioned back in uh, verse 17 that He may turn aside from His conduct and keep man from pride. What is pride? Pride is the opposite of depending on God. Right? Pride is the opposite of seeing that you need a mediator. Pride is saying, I don't need anyone, I'm just fine. And Elihu, Elihu pulls the curtain back and says, Do you see what God is doing? He's saving you from yourself, He's saving you from the pit, He's saving you by using suffering. Verse 31, so pay attention, O Job, listen to me, keep silent and let me speak. And then if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Keep silent and I will teach you wisdom. Did Job jump in in chapter 34, verse 1? No, he doesn't. He keeps his mouth shut. Do you know why? I think because for the first time, since chapter 3, somebody is really speaking the truth in love. Somebody gets it. Now, if that's true, is suffering necessarily about the current sin in my life right now? Shake your head. No. See, the, the three friends, suffering is about sin. Suffering is about sin in your life. Elihu says that's not what suffering is about. In fact, listen, listen to what Carson says. This is interesting. God brought suffering into Job's life not to chasten him for sin that was already there but to show him sin that he didn't see yet. To show him sin in his own heart. Listen to this. Elihu is right to defend God's justice. And he has advanced the discussion by suggesting, listen to this, that Job's greatest sin may not be something he said or did before the suffering started, but the rebellion he is displaying in the suffering. You see that? So God's using the suffering to show Job the rebellion in his heart to bring him back to this place where he sees that he needs a mediator to to come in and help him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Now, if, if, if we're correct in our assessment here, if, if we're not, if this is the right understanding of this verse, what has this whole book been about? God's love. Sheila? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. See, I think that Sheila's right. This is really the first time in the whole book we see what God is doing. Because this has all been about, you know, Satan goes to God. Okay, I'm going to do this, do that. What's God doing here? He's sanctifying Job, isn't he? He's, he's using suffering to bring him to that place where he sees that he needs a mediator. He needs uh, a spokesperson to go on his behalf. He needs atonement. He needs redemption. Okay, very good. That's the other side of this. Uh, what, is he, what is he showing Satan in the midst of this? Okay, it's the gospel according to Elihu. That's what I think it is. Let's pray.